This is Trinity Western University's Chapel Podcast, where our daily chapel gatherings are captured and shared for the TWU community. Whatever your day looks like today, we're glad you're tuning in. So it's great to be with you. I hope that you had a wonderful reading break, that you slept in, that you had a little time perhaps with Netflix, time with family and friends, and that you're ready for the final push of the semester. I'm thrilled that we get to be here. I've only been here a short time, but what is evident is there is among the student body a profound and deep hunger for God. That is precious. That is amazing. You can travel far and wide, and that is not always the case. But God is present, and God is in your life, and you want to grow and follow God. So we're gathered in worship. I'm going to bring a word, but before I do, let's pray. I invite you to join me in this prayer. Holy Lord, we know that whenever you call men and women to preach, you take the risk of putting treasure in trash. You place your treasure in a fragile earthen vessel so that the excellency of power may be of you and not of us. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's have a show of hands. How many have ever heard someone say, I don't believe in God, but I think that Jesus was a great teacher? Any hands? A few. We have many great teachers here at Trinity. Great teachers do a number of really important things. They take you from where you are to where you ought to be. And they do this by opening up your imagination, your intellect, your heart, your spirit, and they offer you a picture of a world that's different than you knew. To see that you can inhabit a world that is more complex beautiful, deep, and vital than you ever thought before. Great teachers do this. But was Jesus simply a great teacher? To figure this out, I want to walk through a classic part of the Bible. It's called the Beatitude. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to look at a few ways of looking at this, two ways. I want to ask, first of all, is faith an if-then proposition? A great teacher can invite you to do tremendous things. In a sense, all great teachers offer you a moral vision of the world. They invite you not merely to think things about the world that are different, but to act, to to do things that are different than you would have done before. That's a moral vision. And if Jesus was a great teacher, even a moral teacher, you'd expect that this is the kind of thing that he would do. He would invite you to live a different kind of life. So with this in mind, look at this passage from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. Starting with verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You see, if Jesus was simply a great moral teacher, then these words would represent a kind of list of characteristics or attributes that you should strive to take on. The Beatitudes would give you a list of what it looks like to become a good or holy person. They could be seen also perhaps as inspirational quotes in the same way that you might add a series of hashtags to a photo on Instagram. Be merciful, be holy, be humble. So if this is a collection of moral teaching and Jesus is no more than a teacher, then each of these statements can be transposed into an if-then pattern. So let's look at this example. In an if-then pattern, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, is a way of saying, if you become someone who is meek and not self-serving or violent, then you will be among those who inherit the earth. Here's another example, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, is transposed into this way. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you will be among those who are filled or satisfied by God. What do you make of all of that? Is that what Jesus is teaching? Is the Sermon on the Mount a list of attitudes or moral characteristics that you should strive to acquire? In fairness, I think some of us like this strategy. Is the if-then proposition attractive? You see, it offers us a system or moral framework in which God rewards good behavior and punishes bad. This would make divine blessing conditional, yes, but at least in the minds of many, that's kind of fair. If you study hard, you should do well in school. If you train really well, you should be able to run faster and harder than your opponent. If you help an elderly woman walk across a busy street, you should not only feel good about yourself, but maybe God should take notice. What if you buy the right clothes? Shouldn't people find you attractive? If you work really hard at being a kind, good, and caring person, God should let you into heaven. Isn't this how the world works? You see, if Jesus is just a moral teacher, then the answer to this question is yes. This is how the world works, and Jesus knew this. Now, if we're really honest with ourselves, we can be tempted to think that this is what Jesus was teaching. If Jesus was committed to offering you a kind of moral roadmap, you might think, I like this. It gives me something to do. Salvation is something in my hands. I'm going to work harder at becoming a good person, knowing that God will reward me for all of my efforts. Think of the worship band. Think of the fact that they set this up every time. Uh, do they do so wondering about, well, I'm, I could be doing other things. 
but, but I'm doing this, and God will reward me for that work. But before we sign off on this if-then pattern and reduce Jesus' teaching to a moral calculus or conditional approval, let's look a bit closer at this passage. If Jesus was committed to offering you a kind of moral roadmap, you might think, ha, I like that. But what do you do with this passage? Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So if Jesus is teaching, work hard and you will get to heaven. He's giving you a list of moral obligations and salvation rests upon your work. Then Jesus is clear, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what kind of teacher is Jesus? If he's a moral teacher, great though he was, hasn't he offered you a standard that you will never meet? That's a trick, isn't it? Look at verse 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So if Jesus was a moral teacher and was upholding the law as an absolute standard, and this is the way the world works, then do you have any confidence? If Jesus is only a moral teacher, if he sets for you a standard that you cannot meet, then what first appeared to be attractive, this if-then proposition, if you work hard, you're rewarded, but now you find that you have to be holier than the Pharisees and teachers of the law, and how likely is that to happen? I know I couldn't. So if Jesus was just a moral teacher, does it work? What if, as classical and evangelical Christianity insists, Jesus was not only fully human, he was at one and the same time the Son of God? Put differently, if salvation is not conditional, then salvation doesn't depend upon your ability to become a good person. Surely, this points us in the right direction. So in an if-then pattern doesn't work, how about a because-therefore pattern? Because Jesus is the divine Son of God, the incarnate Word, the Lamb of God, therefore, we are blessed with divine grace, forgiveness, transformation, and hope. Why did so many people gather to listen to Jesus? Not because they wanted to hear that their good intentions or random acts of kindness would in the end turn God's judgment and wrath into acceptance and reward. In his teaching, they heard the promise of hope and a new world Jesus invited them into the kingdom of God. What many did not notice is this. He not only spoke about the promise of a new rule and structure to life, but he was and is the king. 
As the Son of God, Jesus acted astoundingly to bring about the kingdom. And as such, the Sermon on the Mount is a powerful description of what it means for you to inhabit the city of God. Look at the concluding three verses of the Beatitudes and ask yourself this question. What does Jesus reveal about the kingdom of God? Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if you follow Christ, and he's not merely a moral teacher, he is God, the God who brings in the kingdom of God, who transforms you from darkness to light, from death to life. If that's who God is, and he invites you to follow him, what do you get? According to these verses, if you follow Christ and belong to his kingdom, you should expect persecution, insults, slander, and opposition. You should expect that. And you will have Trinity Western University on your CV. That is a fantastic CV. It's a great resume. And this university has taken a bold stance to stand up for Christ. And, and some alumni and maybe even some students are a bit worried about that. Does this mean that people won't respect me as much as if I went to another university? Again, that's how the world works. The kingdom of God is not like that. You serve a Lord who is king over all. You are at a university that lifts up the name of Christ. And yes, you should expect challenges, but this is not conditional. It's not if you work hard, you'll be rewarded with a life of material success and blessings. This teaching about the way the world really works is a different teaching. The poor, the meek, the humble, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, those who risk offering the entirety of their time, talent, and treasure to God, will for a season face persecution and hardship. And yet, because they belong to a God who promises to bring all things to their proper conclusion, he not only sees your tears, he not only knows your worries, he not only knows your brokenness, but he will in the end bring profound healing because you follow the true King of Kings and you should rejoice. When people judge you for being faithful to God, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. The countless individuals who gathered to hear Jesus heard him proclaim the good news of the kingdom. They knew all too well the reality of poverty, powerlessness, hunger, and even persecution. There are students, not only at this university, and staff and faculty who also have known poverty, powerlessness, hunger, and persecution. And they rejoice because they know Christ. The one thing that offers them joy is being a citizen of the kingdom of God. 
And in spite of the challenges that lay ahead for Jews in the first century, and for all of us living in the 21st century, Jesus called people to follow him. You see, the good news of the gospel is disruptive. It demands that you be open to a radically different understanding of the world. In fact, Jesus turned the world upside down. No longer would the meek, the hungry, the poor, and the persecuted lack hope. In fact, they would be blessed. No human moral teacher could do this. Jesus' teaching cannot be reduced to ethical guidance. You see, unlike the vast majority of moral teachers who suggest that the future is in your hands, that if you work hard, then your life will work out, Jesus offers us something very different. He offers us not an if-then pattern, and an if-then pattern is what theologians call a theology of glory, a theology in which you are rewarded for your hard effort, an approach to life in which you're in control, that your moral effort and sacrifice will apparently be blessed. It's a tempting theology, because who does not want glory, and who does not want a reward for your sacrifice? That's the way the world works. Jesus does not work that way. At your most vulnerable moments, you know that you're inadequate to the task. You know that you're not fully up to the task of making your life work out. Whether facing the final weeks of school, balancing work and classes, perhaps even struggling to find a good friend or someone to love you. Life can be a challenge, but take comfort in the fact that God does not expect you first to make your life work out and then on the basis of your sacrifice offer you a passing grade. The gospel is not an if-then proposition. Salvation is not a conditional offer. Instead, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God is populated by the least of those amongst us. The meek, the poor, the hungry, the merciful. These are the ones that will inherit the kingdom. And if you want to grow in your faith, you should find your way to the poor, the hungry, and the merciful. So how does this work? Salvation is a because therefore pronouncement. Because God has acted astoundingly in Jesus to rescue a lost and broken world, therefore, you are righteous in his sight. This because therefore pattern is what is called the theology of the cross, a powerful display of disruptive grace. It's disruptive because it turns the world upside down. It is grace because Jesus' gift of life and salvation is completely unmerited love. You have done nothing to deserve it. And in spite of your sin and rebellion, it is both absolutely true and absolutely for you. The good news of the gospel is this. God in Christ is irrevocably for us. Listen to these remarkable words by St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20. They're so remarkable, you might not believe they're true. Paul writes, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God 
And if we were in a black church, I would say, can I get a witness? And you would say, amen. Amen. This is why Brother James is here, to help us be a bit more vocal about our faith. And how could, you how could you reject this? For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. In and through Christ, all of God's promises are yes. Because Jesus has suffered and died in our place, God's promises are yes and amen to the glory of God. Divine grace is profoundly creative. It is the means by which God transforms your life. Not through your actions or your effort, but through God's action, sacrifice, and divine love. Now, that makes it sound like you're passive. And you ought to be at a crucial point. At the point where you're asking, I want to live. You should not try to force this through your own effort. You should cast your hope upon God. You should trust in the gospel. And when I come back at some point, I'll preach on the next set of verses. You are salt and light. But just to say, you are salt and light. There are things for you to do. The gospel does transform your life and then set you on a pattern in which you now have something to do to the glory of God. But you need to get the order right. You don't work hard to gain God's love. You are loved by God, and God invites you into his kingdom and then equips you and empowers you by the Holy Spirit to go out and be a powerful witness to God. Indeed, each of us needs to hear the promise of the gospel every day. Left to ourselves, we'll fall back upon the tried and true ways of securing our future through our own efforts. Christ came, however, to deliver you to set you free from the burden of an if-then proposition. So let's bring this to a conclusion. I recognize how difficult it can be to live out the Christian life in faith. Notice, to live out the Christian life in faith. At times, we might feel a bit like this Christian soldier. Head bowed. We know we're disappointing God. We're disappointing ourselves. And we feel like we're not really up to the task. But note, even when we've fallen back upon ourselves, upon an if-then pattern, and have failed to cast our hope in life upon the finished and complete work of Christ, God is with us. In this picture, it's the Holy Spirit that is tapping you on your shoulder of your armor, prompting us to turn around and trust, to have faith in God the God who truly loves us, and to remember that in Christ, all of God's promises are what? Yes. Amen. So we're going to transition. We're going to conclude by praying together. It's a lengthy prayer. I have a bit to do. You have a bit to do. And then we'll conclude together. Let us pray. And when you see the bold bit, that's you. So let us pray. How many times have I been told, O oh Christ, by well-meaning people, that it is my destiny and my charge to go out into the world and do great things for you? How many times in response have I prayed earnestly, 
asking that you would bring such things to pass, that you might use me mightily for the work of your kingdom. How many times have I then waited expectantly and waited and waited for the great thing, whatever it might be, to be made obvious? Was it wrong that I should even desire to do great things for you, Jesus? Am I amiss to plead that I might be mightily used in your works? Do I need more faith, more righteousness, more of your spirit, or have you simply judged me unworthy of your service? Where, O Lord, do I go from here? O children of God, listen well and be comforted. He has never judged you unfit for any service he has called you to. For it is in Christ's righteousness he has clothed you, and his measure of greatness has never been your own. If you would pray to do great things for your God, pray them knowing that in his true and holy reckoning, such greatness will most often be expressed in a long practice of humble and sacrificial servanthood. Be liberated now from this burden of believing that anything depends on you. And so be liberated at last to give yourself to his joyful service in grateful response for the grace he has lavished upon you. Seek not your own glory. Seek God and his glory will be seen in you, radiant in humility and in the strength of his might made manifest even in your brokenness evident even in the smallest of services rendered unto him or offered in his name, even though they be seen by none but you and him, your reward is secure. Is this still your heart's desire then, to do great works for the kingdom of heaven? It is, though I had not known before even what it meant. I ask now for grace that I might now ask aright in purity of heart that the good works of God would be manifest in their many outworkings in my heart and life at all times and in all endeavors, howsoever it pleases him. Amen. Now, children of God, avail yourself of his spirit that you might go and learn to love God and love others, practicing his mercies daily. There is no greater work appointed to you. Alleluia. Then to this great work of learning to bear his likeness and his light, I commit my life. May he strengthen you and encourage you and lead you gently in that good way. Go in peace now to do his will. To Christ be the glory. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that this message has challenged, encouraged, and inspired you as we continue learning and growing together in discipleship to Jesus. Every week, you'll find new chapel messages on our channel from local and international speakers ranging in diverse and engaging topics. So go ahead and subscribe for the latest of what's going on in chapel. Much love and happy listening.